This episode of Navara FM was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navara Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, and help us build people-powered media. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Welcome to Novara FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. The global meat industry is a triumph of capital. It's grown in size fivefold since the 1960s, and last year it pulled in over $1.2 trillion, a figure that's only set to rise. But on the other hand, in recent years there's also been a 40% rise in veganism in the UK alone, and sales of plant-based foods have grown three times faster than overall food sales. More and more people are questioning our relationship with meat-eating, and how it shapes our attitudes to the rest of the natural world. In her new book, Meat Love, writer and author Amber Hussain asks how we can collectively reimagine our connection to animal life, starting with how we look at the animals that end up dead in our ovens and on our plates. Alongside this latest title, Amber Hussain is the author of Replace Me from Peninsula Press in 2021, a book about work, desire and the sweeping late capitalist fear of being replaced. Her essays on politics, literature and art have been published in Granta, the LRB, New Left Review, the White Review and many more besides. Meat Love, which was published last month, delves into the so-called ethical meat industry that prides itself on restoring a natural symbiotic order of man and beast, on giving animals a noble death and afterlife, on loving them before you kill and eat them. But is this really a cure for the malaises of the capitalist food industry? Can you really love something and then send it to be slaughtered for profit? And what do these questions tell us about violence, about nature, and about our duty to make a change? I talked to Amber about body horror, bourgeois restaurant culture, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's pig farm, and desire under capitalism. Hi Amber, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me. So seeing as we are talking about meat, I think we might start at the table, as it were. Um, In the book, you detail a kind of fundamental shift in how you view meat or how you viewed meat uh, when you were kind of engaging with it, you know, as a part of your diet. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I currently don't eat meat, but you know, like most like most people, hasn't always been that way. It wasn't a kind of rational decision on my part. It wasn't a particularly moral decision or even a political decision to stop eating meat one day. Um, it was more a kind of stealth creep of uh, disgust that happened over the course of a period of time when I was basically, I was dating someone who was vegan and living with them and eating with them. And um, I roundly, roundly mocked him for a while, but eventually found that uh, I simply 
couldn't see meat uh, in the same way as I had before. Uh, I, you know, I started to, over the course of, you know, changing my diet, something to do with that kind of behaving differently, relating differently to the things that you're putting in your mouth. I just found that I couldn't see it in the same way anymore. Like I saw an animal in a way that I'd seen just an abstraction, which then kind of became a sort of politicizing um, process because, yeah, through that through that kind of shift in my way of seeing, it was like I couldn't I couldn't live in that kind of denial anymore. It opened up a, something something in me that allowed me to sort of think more clearly or more honestly with myself about what the political stakes of the fact that we kill and eat animals really is. But yeah, that was never, that wasn't really a resolved thing in my mind. And, you know, it still isn't. Um, but in the course of writing the book, I was able to think through, you know, some of, some of the questions around the politics of meat a bit more. I'd love to know more about, I guess, what you think about that moment of disgust or disgust in general as a way of articulating a kind of political subjectivity. Because sometimes we think about uh, consciousness raising or, you know, changing mm. your mind politically as um, either a, a intellectual process, right? Or a process that takes place through like maybe more cuddly forms of emotions, but um, being presented <laughs> with something that is, you know, tantamount to a kind of body horror as a, a moment of political awakening, I find like very, very um, interesting in that it unsettles what might be something that we take for granted and that our ability to broker between what is meat and what is people, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And it's hard to kind of articulate it in a in a singular way, because it is such a kind of multi-sensory thing, I think. Um, that sort of changing of the mind through changes in the body, like changes to what gives us pleasure and what makes us recoil. In a sense, the book is kind of an attempt to grapple with, um, you know, sometimes that functions in a clarifying way and sometimes it functions in a mystifying way. Like sometimes, you know, being led by your pleasures and disgusts um, or, you know, other bodily sensations can actually shut down clearer thinking and sometimes it can sort of open up the imagination. And I think personally, I found that with meat, it was kind of like, you know, there was this latent guilt, even when I was sort of inanely, <laughs> inanely <laughs> mocking, you know, mocking my boyfriend. Yeah, there was this latent guilt that was there. I think there was already a kind of willingness within me to explore um, or, or to sort of like get on board with the kind of ethical slash political project um, of vegetarianism and then veganism, I suppose. Although, you know, I have some issues with these terms, which we can discuss. To an extent, that already being there meant that I experienced that kind of change of heart or change in my kind of tastes as liberating me to, as I say, sort of think a bit more clearly and um, dive a bit deeper um, into the, you know, into the politics of food than I would otherwise have done. Mm. 
Let's talk about meat love, this kind of concept that gives the book its title. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you are pointing at with this sort of, it's like a bourgeois ideology and it's also a practice. It's also a sort of thing that you tell yourself when you're eating your nice piece of like organic farmed and brushed piece of beef or whatever. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so... This is kind of something that it took me a little while to pin down. I think in part because I was kind of enthralled to it. I think part of what made me even want to explore ideas around meat was that I didn't really know how I felt about it. And part of that was also because it feels, it can feel very awkward and conflicted to be, you know, to be not eating meat especially when you're kind of middle class and you move in middle class circles. Um, there, is the, there are a lot of accusations that get thrown around of kind of ignorance, disconnectedness with the realities of, you know, farming and this kind of larger, um, larger global order. And one of the questions that I set out to answer was, you know, why does it feel so bad or why do I feel so guilt-ridden for not eating meat? And what I came to was this sort of ideological current that I think runs through a lot of discourse around meat, um, which is that eating meat can actually be um, not just a kind of justifiable, but a sort of honorable or, um, you know, enlightened thing to do as long as it is the meat is produced and eaten in a way that is loving, conscious, caring, ethical. So yeah, what I describe as meat love is both a kind of ideology and an aesthetic. Um, it sort of runs through not just like the way people talk about meat, but also the way that it's represented, you know, drawing on lots of um, aesthetic tropes that evoke kind of uh, ancient wisdom, higher intellect, um, a kind of great sensitivity that might be contrasted with sort of the sexualization of meat. Um, so yeah, it's kind of to distill that ideology, I suppose. Yeah, it's just this idea that um, it is not just possible, but um, perhaps even a necessary part of loving animals that we continue to kill and eat them. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, it's sort of, you know, we're laughing about it, right? Because there, there is something that feels uh, like prima facie absurd to have a, a loving relationship with something that, that you're then going to condemn to death and uh, eat, right? You're going to mm. not just sort of kill, but then kind of consume as well. And um, how easily that is sometimes folded into a, uh, discourses of love and like discourses of you know tr uh, ethical practice towards like other parts of nature I'm curious as to I guess what that says about other practices of love and you know is this sort of contradictory is it sort of actually something that we're more used to in in terms of the relationship of of, of love and violence than we might um, otherwise think what do you think yeah I think I think the thing is, this idea of love gets gets bandied about as if it kind of eclipses the possibility of any kind of violence or injustice. Whereas, you know, actually, 
if we think about it, there are many violent ways um, to love something. And there are also there are also ways of loving something that involve care. And I think that is mostly, to be fair, um, what is being invoked when people talk about ethical meat, um, which is kind of the industry that I'm sort of taking aim at, the ethical meat industry, um, when I talk about meat love. That is mostly about trying to trying to find ways of continuing to produce meat and, you know, milk and whatever else from animals while trying to give them as good a life as possible. But then, yeah, at the same time, um, it could be argued that there are elements of bad faith going on there and that there are aspects of that love um, which end up kind of serving quite a pernicious function because, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of terrible things can be you know, appear to be justified in the name of love. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at how animal husbandry works, um, there is, you know, there are kind of elements of sexual coercion which involve animals um, or, you know, where the animals have been kind of trained to participate in these practices of being kind of bred from and artificially inseminated over and over again. Um, I mean, you could call that consent love, but I suppose it begs the question of uh, how how did we get here in the first place? Are the principles underlying these processes actually to do with love or are they to do with something else? Um, I think that often when we're talking about um, concepts, when we're talking about something politically, it, it is kind of worth asking, like, what is the role of love? Why are we even bringing love into this? Like, might, might another concept not be a better way of organizing our ideas around these things like a concept like justice for example (laughs) yeah absolutely and I'd love to go into I guess the 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 genesis of uh meat love like as you see it because um when we think about sort of like you know upper class relationships to meat like traditionally that's one of distance like class is sort of defined by your distance from the experience of sort of blood and guts it's actually baked into the English language right that we have different words for like the animal and the meat on our plate because of like some very old distinct uh, class distinctions between like who was doing the actual rearing of the animals and who was doing the eating of the animals but now you get sort of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall doing sort of what you call like upper class peasant cosplay and this is sort of uh, lauded as a, as a badge of kind of moral honour like and uh, sort of class honour as well. Yeah I think that's that's a really kind of nice way of putting it that kind of um, how the sort of class relations involved in meat production get kind of confused with the class relations involved in meat consumption and you have these kinds of like culinary trends that um, are sort of I guess you could call them kind of peasant core in a way (laughs) this kind of like combination of 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 aesthetically rough eating but that is also done in an extremely sophisticated way so like people sort of eating like peasants and feeling like somehow that kind of aligns them in some way with a with a a kind of romantic um idea of a of a peasant class that maybe you know doesn't exist in quite the form it's being invoked anymore um yeah there's all kinds of all kinds of 
mystifications that go on. And I think that the sort of waning of class consciousness is actually quite a big part of what what bolsters um, the the kind of discourse around uh, ethical meat, that it's kind of uh, rather than a class privilege to be... Um, to be able to eat more expensive, lovingly reared meat, that it's somehow an act of class solidarity. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit more about what that kind of meat love looks like in mm. practice, because there's in the book, it's the kind of amazingly toggle between like classical Greek references and like a very thorough skewering of River Cottage, which I love. <laughs> um, so uh, tell us about, you know, what Hugh and his ilk are getting up to and what, how they conceive of, of what they're doing. I feel bad at this point for really coming for Hugh in the way that I the way that <laughs> I'm I sure did. he's fine. Yeah, I know. I'm sure he is. And like, you know, his relationship with me has 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 clearly changed over time. But in the book, I'm kind of doing this like partial genealogy um, of of this kind of idea around um yeah what it what it what it would look like to go back to the land and and have a more kind of ethical relationship with me um which which has had a, a very kind of clear through line <laughs> from from shows like river cottage to some of the stuff that happens on instagram today but yeah basically what i'm talking about is in the context of kind of you know around the around the 90s 80s this in the context of sort of rapid industrialization uh, massive sort of growth in factory farming people becoming aware of some of the sort of worst horrors um that that happen on on large scale farms there's this kind of general feeling that it might be a good idea for us to like take a step back and think about our relationship with meat um and there's this like really um recurrent rhetoric of where the meat comes from let's let's kind of restore our relationship with where our meat comes from and really take a long hard look at it and yeah tv shows like river cottage which started in the 90s um are kind of like a lovely fun way of doing this um it's not like heavy-handed documentary or anything it's just like a fun show where a guy goes and lives on a lovely farm and like gambles among some animals and does some sort <laughs> of living <laughs> living in a nice rural village in Dorset and bartering for stuff um, and dressing up as a peasant and, you know, trolling yes. his <laughs> upper class landlords. And, you know, it's kind of a funny show. It's kind of tongue in cheek. But at the same time, there is this very sincere kind of underlying rhetoric that Hugh Fanley Whittingstall, this kind of upper class Londoner of the landed gentry, or of, of that heritage is um, in some sense kind of modeling a virtue that is simply not being, um, or, you know, that the kind of factory farmer is simply not uh, educated or enlightened enough to emulate. And that if we could all just be a little bit more like that, like everything would be fine um, because these animals are having a great time. Um, and I suppose, like, I suppose what gets obscured is the kind of wider, you know, the wider system, the wider politics that means that, you know, in order for in order for the, the capitalist food system to continue to be profitable, there will inevitably be a demand for cheap meat and therefore uh, the kind of like need, 
it's not actually a necessity, but like the contingent necessity of cheap labor. And that, you know, to kind of play act at um, a kind of subsistence existence, which is not uh, one's own, and to sort of like make that into a ethic and aesthetic that urban diners can kind of tap into somehow by just buying more expensive and lovingly reared meat is, you know, it's kind of a, it's just kind of a bit of a joke. And even though you know, Hugh Fenley Whittingstall is a, is like an intelligent man and he, he is kind of, he is being sort of a little bit facetious, I think, in that play acting that he does, the way that it has been interpreted and the way that that kind of like message um, continues to percolate um, has been really, really powerful. Like people really think that, um, you know, they could do their bit by just engaging as consumers in this kind of fantasy. That's one aspect of it. And yeah, you, you brought up the sort of the references to Greek tragedy. I suppose what I'm kind of doing in that early part of the book um, where I set out um, some of the kind of aesthetics of meat love as it relates to the production of meat is that there is often this very tragic aesthetic invoked whereby, you know, there's this drama staged. And we see this even in kind of something as banal as an episode of River Cottage. It's kind of structured like a tragedy where, you know, Hugh has to take his pigs to the abattoir and it's this terrible, sad necessity. It could never have been any other way. It's like it's been ordained by the gods and there's this sad music and then, you know, this kind of bloodless scene where he where he drives them off and then you know it's being kind of butchered at the end and and it's kind of this sort of like invocation of of the necessity of tragedy after after the fashion of greek drama but kind of in a way that that drains it of any of the violence or kind of power analysis that that aesthetic tradition involves I um, am definitely going to kind of bring us back down to earth from uh, Greek tragedy. I mean, loyal and long-standing listeners of Navarra FM know that um, somewhere out there, James Butler is screaming. But um, what this brings to mind for me is uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, in the restaurant at the end of the universe. Such a deep cut if any uh, if anyone knows it. But there is a, uh, a cow that is brought out before they um, uh, eat their meal, like before they eat their steaks, to explain to the um, customers um, how very much that it, um, it longs for death and would very much like to be eaten by them. And they're actually doing it a favor. And, you know, the humans involved are like absolutely horrified, right? And it just kind of puts me in mind of the vast difference between how our relationship to meat is like usually obscured, aka by just like presenting itself as just sort of a, a lump of a non-specific matter that like comes in a sealed plastic thingamy um, versus this like tragic horror uh, sci-fi relationship to I'm sending my children off to the abattoir. So it just all makes me wonder what Meat Love is, is doing in a kind of a broader picture of, you know, how our industrial food relationships are uh, justified 
Yeah, yeah. I, I was sweating there for a minute because I was like, "Oh my god, no! It's a, it's a, it's a meat deep cut that I don't know." I thought I'd, I thought I'd consumed <laughs> all the meat content there was in the entire world. Um, <laughs> Much like the meat industry, it's it's endless. Unfortunately, it's just totally endless, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah there's something really powerful in a kind of absurd way uh, about getting people to just look at something to say if you could just look at that if you can just look at what you're doing then everything will be resolved um and I guess what's happening with with this like looking at where our meat comes from is that we forget that you know it's not enough just to look if you're not looking in order to actually better see something (laughs) if you're just looking at something in order to feel like you're really attending to it but then just continuing to do what you're doing anyway it actually becomes potentially uh, a means of mitigating or licensing forms of violence rather than actually doing something like doing something real about it so I think that um I guess what you just described it kind of captures something quite um yeah how that how there there can be a lot of bad faith running through the sort of rhetoric that justifies continuing to eat meat Mm -hmm. which is not to say that there's not a lot of bad faith in veganism as well because I think often a lot of virtuous not <laughs> virtuous shunning of meat happens without really thinking about what's going on there as well. It's, it's one form of mystification among several. <laughs> um, I'm curious as to what we take from this sort of the structure of, of meat love, whereby the kind of worst sin that it presents in my eyes, at least is, you know, not cruelty, but kind of hypocrisy or like inauthenticity Mm. yeah I think that um are you are you talking about the the worst sin to who to who for um I guess the practitioners of meat love we have an ism for veganism and vegetarianism but the meat lovers meat lovers (laughs) does meat lovers yeah Mm. yeah question doesn't quite work let's put a pin in that (laughs) workshop it (laughs) um yeah yeah it's it's true there's this idea that as long as you're kind of conscious about what you're doing you can't possibly be a hypocrite and if you're not a hypocrite then there can't be anything wrong with what you're doing right yeah and if you are interested in kind of engaging with the politics of meat production and consumption, having hypocrisy be the kind of guiding principle becomes a kind of nonsense because there simply aren't like universal rules that you can apply to, you know, how everybody should relate to these things in the actually existing conditions, capitalist food system that we live under. Um, because yeah, as I say, it is, it is just a complete mess, right? Like, it's not possible for everybody just to choose not to eat meat. It's not affordable for everybody. It's not possible for um, all producers to decide to make meat in a certain way because it's not, you know, profitable enough for them to make a living. Um, there are also all kinds of other considerations involved in people's relationship with food. Um you know, histories of uh, displacement and, you know, of, yeah, there's just there's so many there's there there's so many kind of different factors involved in what you know constraining people's choices in relation to food um so to prescribe a kind of um universal set of rules and demand that everybody um either adopt them or don't and stick to them or not 
is kind of, um, I don't know, it just feels like a bit of a nonsense, really. Um, but at the same time, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't principles or values um, or kind of like political commitments that we can draw into the way that we relate to meat. You know, for example, just like, you know, wanting to... Um, wanting to uh, cultivate a relationship with animals that isn't exploitative or uh, that kind of, yeah, that, that isn't exploitative, that isn't extractive, that isn't based on domination, uh, which could be interpreted in any number of ways, depending on what you're able to do in your life. For some people, that is very, you know, you can very easily stop eating meat um, if you want to abide by those principles and for other people it will mean different things I guess so yeah I think that um having the avoidance of hypocrisy be the sort of be the place that we start from is perhaps not very helpful in terms of making a transformation that goes beyond individual consumer choice um making a transformation that involves like you know, politicizing people to engage with a broader struggle to transform our relationship with capitalism and our relationship <laughs> with animal life. Um, so yeah, just like small things like that. Yeah, just, you know, something to something to get done on a Sunday afternoon when you've, when you've <laughs> you know, done your hoovering. Um, I, it does um, make me wonder that this um, kind of dilemma of like, you know, veganism or kind of, you know, the practice of meat love um, as these sort of, you know, individuated ways of, you know, f feeling like a good person in uh, mm. the context of like um, what um, like kind of both camps acknowledge is like a deeply messed up global food system. Um, it raises the question of how we are supposed to like act as like individual moral agents in this kind of like very kind of intimate and like personal act of like what we put in our bodies and like what are the kinds mm. of like moral duties that we have towards this you know towards one another towards um the non-human web of life um towards like the need for change more generally because you know we have this like old face-off happening in this debate of there is no ethical consumerism under capitalism versus yes okay but we need to do something yeah yeah, exactly. And and I think this engaging with, um, trying to engage with both, trying to engage with our desires in relation to meat, while also kind of keeping an eye on the political economy of, of meat, of food, and of just kind of like everything in general. It's above my pay grade with this book to, um, to determine, you know, how exactly the labor movement and the animal rights movement and the climate justice movement need to, you know, and various other movements uh, need to organize to overthrow capitalism and to extend, um, you know, our transformed social order to recognize animals as um, worthy of incorporation into our non-hierarchical non utopia. Um, but equally, I think this comes back to kind of where we started uh, this conversation uh, with the sort of the significance of food and eating, not as kind of political ends in themselves. I think people can get really distracted by thinking about food choices and, you know, what we eat 
um, and kind of dietary prescriptions, um, but rather how we eat and the kind of effect that that can have on our political consciousness, um, not just our kind of readiness to um, behave in different ways, but our readiness to do that work, do that political work to bring about a different society. Um, and I think that, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to be the case for absolutely everybody on earth, but I suspect that in general, you know, we're much more likely to be able to imagine um, a kind of liberated landscape for animal life if we're not every day taking, you know, taking so much pleasure in in consuming their flesh. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think our politics and our kind of individual behaviours have to kind of mutually inform one another to some extent you know there has to be some kind of there has to be some like lifting of of yourself outside of the kind of logic of just like pursuit of individual pleasure but then at the same time you know cultivating new pleasures can have a very quietly transformative effect our, our behaviors towards animals whether that's through um you know whether we choose to eat them or not is feels it feels like to the extent that it is a politicizing practice it feels like a necessary um if completely insufficient condition of um you know doing the political work that would be required to bring about a different social relationship with animals so yeah it's like it's important it's not enough by itself but equally you know the more the more we can imagine things differently the more our pleasures will change and the easier you know the easier it becomes mm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when we think about this kind of um, utopianism, and I don't mean that in a bad way, of you know, uh, imagining a system without like the coercion of animal life, uh, you know, including like animal life that you know can't sort of meaningfully consent in the way that we you know ordinarily think of um, people being able to consent because you know so that requires a certain level of sapience that say I don't know a prawn maybe doesn't have right <laughs> yeah, um, yeah 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 uh, but uh, the kind of practitioners the partisans of meat love have a kind of very simple um answer to that they have a kind of simple utopianism because it's that it's a claim to this sort of revanchist natural state where you know the our relationship with meat is grounded in this like mutual symbiosis and like we're just animals that happen to be eating other animals and we need to do it in a way that's like as natural and uncorrupted as possible and i'm really really curious about that claim to naturalness and i guess what it's doing yeah yeah, I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to just say that something is natural um, and therefore kind of not, um, you know, not interrogate whether it's necessary or whether it's desirable. Um, uh, I mean, I, I guess like there is an issue with the question of whether whether such things are natural. You often hear people talk about our kind of natural or our evolutionary need for meat. There's a lot of talk about, yeah, need and how this is all kind of grounded in need. Um, but obviously, you know, human needs have been defined differently, like throughout history, according to different, um, you know, social, cultural and political priorities. Um, so there's that. There is the question of like, is it even is it even natural? But then I think more important is the question of like, well, does it really matter? You know, um, the the idea of something being natural can can kind of close down a conversation to the point where you end up seeing ideas like symbiosis kind of bandied about 
this this idea of a mutual mutual relationship with animals where we give them something and they take like they we give they give us something we take something but we also give them something you know without thinking about what those somethings are <laughs> whether or not the like the power balance in in that give and take is actually equal um and where it comes from and and also kind of like why we're even talking about this in the first place. Like, why are we scurrying to find um, concepts like symbiosis to describe our relationship with animals? Is it because we really care about what we're giving them or is it just because we want to find a way, uh, uh, again, like to, to kind of justify the status quo? So yeah, I guess I think it's, it's always really important to ask kind of why these terms are being invoked. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's why I find, I suppose that's why I find it liberating not to be someone who takes so much pleasure in eating meat anymore, because I did and, and was very defensive about it for a really long time. <laughs> I don't think I was that sophisticated in the way that I defended it. I think I'd just be like, although I, I, do, I definitely like can hear myself in the past, maybe like invoking like, oh, it's just how it is, isn't it? It's just how it is. Like, um, <laughs> as soon as you as soon as you stop instinctively just trying to defend kind of like the things that you hold dear for whatever reason or or yeah defend a kind of pleasure that you don't want to be taken away in some cases like very understandably it does sort of liberate you to ask these questions about okay like um yeah is this is 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 that the most important thing that this relationship is is in some way natural is it really natural and kind of is this relationship of mutual care actually mutual and is it caring and what does care even mean (laughs) (laughs) right there's a lot of kind of like mystification that happens with the sort of broad brush strokes And, and what I'm uh struck by is that you know including in like otherwise what you know maybe fluffy uh, like liberal commitments to treating animals well and um, you know good two thumbs up yeah I, I don't want to love that <laughs> just to be very clear <laughs> lovely um there um in in their claim to this natural and uh, naturalness it does somewhat remind me of kind of I just guess far right understandings mm. of mm. the animal as sort of the human as animal and the kind of the right and like honest political relationship to you know everything to the state to each other etc cetera, etc cetera, is yeah. you know one of this sort of natural violence and natural domination we kill and we are killed and we should just simply understand ourselves as on top of the food chain and we're engaged in this sort of struggle for a struggle for life and death and yeah it might not be pretty but like so what you know otherwise it's you know we just collapse into this sort of decadence and mysticism (laughs) and what and that kind of thing and it's just I just didn't expect to draw a line between Jordan Peterson Mm. and his like scurvy all meat diet and (laughs) Hugh Fernley Whittingstall um presumably a broadly well-intentioned man yeah yeah I know what you mean like and there are some kind of weird continuities between that the kind of like liberal, um, you know, caring, nature loving type attitude with certain forms of kind of agro nationalism, protecting the kind of like the national heritage of the way things have been done. Yeah, it's very flexible. This this idea of humans as animals as well is funny. Like you hear. 
Um, people talk about, you know, humans being animals in order to kind of justify, um, yeah, justify the fact that we, um, you know, we, we're just like any other animals. We have to eat other animals. You know, we're kind of naturally and innately violent and it's just what we do because we're animals. But then also, um, you know, distinguishing ourselves just enough to allow us to feel good about doing so because we do it in this kind of like organized, orderly and humane, yeah, humane way. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think there is a bit of kind of flexibility in this in this discourse about whether or not and to what extent humans are actually animals, basically depending on depending on what we want to do with that information. Um, but yeah, it's also funny like what you describe about... Um, you know, this, this kind of idea of primal needs, as if the people who are, mo the, the majority of people who are mobilizing that rhetoric are actually hunting and gathering and like having to run around and like rip up, <laughs> rip up wild beasts with their like raw, raw? With their bare hands. Yeah. Just like, you know, yeah, it's a funny I mean, they may image. well be raw. They, you know, Jordan Peterson, it does not seem like a... <laughs> he just well clawed so hard at this. diet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the best. Um, <laughs> what strikes me in the book is this kind of resonance with a lot of, you know, certainly feminist work and, and also kind of other ways of articulating what the uh, experience of exclusion or uh, oppression or violence and, and that kind of thing is like, but using the framework and being treated like an animal and being treated like meat and, um, Certainly Peter has, like, I think kind of rightly gotten into trouble by using these sort of uh, images of pretty naked women being, you know, butchered and sold as meat, you know, as though that doesn't, you know, also kind of happen either literally or metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it, it that thing of talking about being treated like a piece of meat in, um, I don't remember if I actually mentioned this explicitly in the book, but in... Um, Carol J. Adams's um, feminist work, The Sexual Politics of Meat from 1990. She talks about this, I think she coins the, this phrase, the absent referent, um, which, yeah, refers to the thing that is kind of being cut out of all political or ethical consideration um, when, you, when you talk in those terms. I.e. so for, for, for a woman to complain that she is being treated like a piece of meat, the argument goes... It, it does a disservice to to the meat because, yeah, what does it then mean that a piece of meat deserves to be, you know, that an animal deserves to be treated with violence, I guess, is the, is the implication. Um, and it's kind of like, it's a difficult discourse because I think there's a lot of anxiety around comparing, you know, comparing women to animals and saying, for example, that violence against women is the same thing as, as violence against animals. Um, you don't have to necessarily be comparing like for like anything in order to identify that there is like a common system of domination that is, you know, that leads to violence against all, all different kinds of constituencies, right? Like within the kind of system, in, inter, interlocking systems of patriarchal racial capitalism, um, there is a kind of like parceling out of which, which lives are worth more and which lives are worth less in order that we can, you know, devalue some, exploit some, e extract profit for others. And so there is an extent to which like, you know, you could say, 
metaphorically like that you know how how everybody's <laughs> making me out of somebody um and that in some sense kind of like the making of meat um and you see this kind of highlighted in satires around cannibalism i guess um yeah the making of meat would seem to be the kind of furthest logical extension of capitalism's devaluation of life and you know cheapening of life or certain forms of life hierarchically. Absolutely. Um, talking of capitalism, as we love to do here, um, you outline how this kind of broadly is a, a case study in the, the capitalist uh, flattening of values, how, you know, the exchange value um, is designed to not differentiate between what is a need and what is a, like a whim or a pleasure things like that. Mm. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think, um, so to, to refer to, uh, <laughs> capital volume <laughs> one, um, there is, yeah, there Please is Please turn this... to your accompanying volume. <laughs> um, there is this, um, yeah, there is this kind of like flattening within the, the capitalist system of different kinds of need. Um, there's there's a line which is something like you know whether it, whether it comes from the stomach or from or from fancy you know makes no difference um, uh, to whether or not something has value on the market basically and yeah I sort of relate this I think to you know what happens on the kind of consumption end of meat love where you see this kind of valuation of animal life um, being rolled into a sort of a luxury product. And I talk in particular about um, the kind of ethical and aesthetic universe of nose to tail eating, which refers in its kind of philosophy to the sort of um, this this peasant way of of eating whereby, you know, an animal was precious, you would live on it um, for the winter or like, you know, a peasant family would live on would live on an animal's meat for a winter and, and every part of it is precious and you cook every part of it and you know it's like a celebration of um of of nature and of life and what the earth has given us and all of that stuff um and it and it gets kind of appropriated in in this kind of like very um I don't know what the right word to describe it in terms of class fraction I suppose like upper middle class or just very kind of like sophisticated urban middle class dining culture you know there is there are obviously restaurants like St John in London but then there's also you know there are many equivalents around Europe and the US um the farm to table movement you see a lot of this um but yeah this kind of nose to tail eating the idea being that it would be sort of disingenuous to the animal not to eat the whole thing without any kind of um acknowledgement uh, given to the fact that uh, the people who are eating these, you know, say the, the the whole hog roast are not peasants and have actually paid like a huge sum of money to mm. to enjoy this meat <laughs> experience. And, you know, it's tapping into this very carnivorous kind, kind of chic carnivorous, <laughs> chic carnivorousness, carnivore chic, uh, yeah, like faux peasant dining culture, which is encouraging people to like, yeah, really relished their own uh, meat-eating excess. Um, yeah, it, it, it's nothing to do with subsistence anymore. It has all to do with money. Um, 
And yeah, the, the kind of like aesthetic value of, of the thing becomes kind of discursively rolled into the value of life, like the intrinsic value of, of, of an animal life. Um, and also the use value of animal life, which is again, like no longer relevant because there are so many other ways these people could be eating um, in order to like fulfill the use value that a diet, you know, is supposed to fulfill. So yeah, all this is to say different kinds of value definitely get elided within this within this rhetoric of of loving a loving attitude to meat and need so i guess where next because um you are cautious in uh, not saying like well the the solution is for for everyone to just you know go vegan mm. right because this is you know it's it's a it's a technological question it's a political question as well as one that's kind of like wrangled out in your particular relationship to like individual acts of killing yeah i think that um you know there's two there's two kind of strands to it i think we have to think about what it is that we actually want um if we want to transform the social order that has given us meat and that has given us yeah the 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 meat industry the worst of factory farming like you know what alternative do we want um and if we want to have um a kind of anti-capitalist socioeconomic order and uh, a a food system that isn't organized around profit and competition um and maybe one that was a, a of revolved around actual kind of like needs and desires and you know dignity for and for all life whether we want to extend that yeah whether we want to extend that to animal life and if we do I think that there is definitely a place for I think I think a lot of a lot of imagination has to be cultivated that hasn't been cultivated yet um, because we are still kind of I think, as you sort of hinted at, like finding, trying to find techno fixes, like, you know, lab grown meat or whatever, in order to sustain the attitude that we already have where we're entitled to eat meat. And so like, if we want to re reshape desire in some way, what what's the best way to go about doing that? And I think that a, a big part of that is going to have to be kind of experiments in different ways of living that help us to you know cultivate that imagination like forming new pleasures maybe that will come from you know for a lot of people that could very easily come from changing the way they eat um amongst you know many other things but yeah like I I guess for me it's just like I, I almost like by accident discovered like how powerful it can be to your way of seeing the world to sort of change your behavior by accident so like I, I suppose there's there's a bit of back and forth that needs to happen and, and experimentation but I think that it, it it kind of does us a disservice to rule out um you know the ways that embodying um, embodying our political values um can actually be really powerful in terms of like helping us work out what it is that we even want what what kind of like communist horizon for example like we even want and there i think we will have to leave it that is all we have time for amber thank you so much for joining us thanks so much 